and with his hair at midnight and a light breakfast at 6.30 tomorrow morning. Then I was told that this could not be. I said that an all-night sitting would certainly make history here. But the answer came back that it was neither the aim nor the object of this particular group to make history. And so I had to delete much of my material, and this is what's left. Now, my story has, as it were, a common denominator running throughout its length, right up to the present time, in fact. Because the photograph you're now looking at is of Thomas Octave Murdoch Sopwith. This photograph was taken in 1910 when he was 22 years old. He's the eighth child of a civil engineer. And uh, at this time, he was the part owner of a yacht, the Neva, in which an auxiliary engine had been installed by Mr. Fred Segrist, a member of the yacht crew, who was to play a very significant part in the technical and engineering side of Mr. Sopwith's future aircraft works. Now, in 1910, Mr. Sopwith got uh, enthused with flying. He had already done some ballooning, but uh, in September of 1910, he saw and inspected his first aircraft, and he decided to buy one of his own. And so he went to Howard Wright, uh, an aircraft manufacturer not related to Wilbur and Orville Wright, an Englishman, and bought the airplane in which you see him flying here for about 630 pounds. It was powered by a 40-horsepower ENV engine. And uh, it was a single-seater, and consequently he had to teach himself to fly. Uh, after a slight accident or two and a bit of engine trouble, he decided the following month, uh, in November, to buy the Howard Wright biplane, which you see here. Now, this is powered uh, by a 60-horsepower ENV engine, and it was on this aeroplane that he gained his Royal Aero Club Flying Certificate, number 31, on November the 22nd, 1910. And it was also on this aeroplane that he won the Baron de Forest Prize of £4,000. Well, the following year, April in 1911, uh, Mr. Sopwith decided to go to America to enter various competitions at Long Island, Philadelphia, Chicago, Columbus, and Boston. And here is the group in America. And on the left of the screen is uh, Fred Segrist. And next to him is a Mr. Sturrock, who is their manager. And next to him, the lady, is Sir Thomas's sister, May. A wonderful lady, still alive, over 90 years of age. Tom Sopwith himself, and seated on the ground in the felt in the cap, Harry England, and Jack Pollard, who later took over the experimental shops of Sopwith's, and uh, subsequently spent many years with Hawkins. Now, while they were in America, the Wright brothers took out a restraining action against Sopwith flying his Howard Wright biplane because they alleged that he infringed certain patents they had taken up. And so Sopwith went to New York and solved the problem by buying a Wright flyer, and here you see him jumping into it during one of the competitions. At the end of 1911, uh, Sopwith returned to England, and early in 1912, he opened a flying school at Brooklands with his Howard Wright monoplane and biplane, a Burgess Wright, that was a, a Wright flyer made in America by a man called Burgess, and a single and two-seater Blériot. In fact, to the right of the picture, you could just see the nose of one of the Blériots protruding from the hangar. This then is Sopwith in the instructor's seat of a Burgess Wright, and it was in this aeroplane that he taught many people to fly during that summer of 1912, including a certain Major Trenchard, who was, of course, to be the founder of the Royal Air Force. Among his other pupils was a young Australian, and his name was Harry George Hawker. And this is the Harry Hawker, this is the Hawker we mean when we still, when we talk about the Hawker Sydney group. Hawker was born in 1889 in Australia. He came to England in 1911 and joined Sopwith in 1912 as a mechanic. Towards the end of the summer, he asked Sopwith if he could be taught to fly. Now, the normal price for being taught to fly in those days by the Sopwith School and many others 
was about 75 pounds, up to the Royal Aero Club Certificate Standard. But on account of he was a member of the staff, Sopwith only charged him 50 quid, and he gained his Aero Club Certificate, number 297, in September of 1912. The following month, he set up the world's duration uh, time of 8 hours and 23 minutes in the Burgess Rite, on which he had received his instruction. And this was to be, this was the start of Hawker's active competition and demonstration flying, which did so much for the Sopwith and early Hawker Company. Well, again, also in the middle of 1912, uh, Sopwith decided that he would go ahead and build aeroplanes. Um, and this was the very first Sopwith aeroplane. First flew on July the 4th, 1912, and after flying it solo once or twice at Brooklyn, Sopwith took up two of his mechanics. It was powered by a 70-horsepower Gnome engine from one of his Blériot aircraft, and it was later sold to the Admiralty, to whom he was to sell so many aircraft later on for 900 pounds. He wanted to go into uh, aircraft production in a big way. Brooklyn's just wasn't the place for it, and he cast around for a better place to make his machines. In 1909, somebody opened a roller skating rink in Canberra Park Road at Kingston-upon-Thames, fairly close to the, the railway station. Uh, this founded in 1912, it was put up for sale, and says Sopwith bought it. Now, it might be of some interest for you to know that the young gentleman, the younger, the smaller of those two chaps standing by the door there, transferred, as it were, to Sopwith when he bought the place, and uh, Jack Whitehorn, for such is his name, has been with us ever since. This is Jack Whitehorn today, outside that uh, entrance that you saw in the previous slide 59 years ago. Now, meanwhile, at the Windsor Model Aeroplane Club, a certain gentleman, second from the end of the screen, to the left of the screen as you're looking at it there, was making his name as a model aeroplane designer, and his name was Sidney Cam. He was to join the Martinside Aircraft Company shortly after this picture was taken, and later to join Hawkers. But we'll carry on with a photograph of the first, as it were, proper Sopwith aeroplane, the three-seater, built in 1913 in that skating rink. The machine was powered with a 100-horsepower green engine, and it achieved the world's uh, maximum height of 12,000 feet in that year. Now, not content only with land planes, Sopwith branched out when Sidney Burgoyne joined the company and built water planes, or this particular machine was his first one, the Sopwith Bat Boat. The hull, in fact, was built by Saunders of Cars. It, too, was powered with a 100-horsepower green engine. It was exhibited at the 1913 um, Aero Show at Olympia. And uh, the summer of that year, it won the 500-pound Mortimer Singer Prize. Uh, there's not time, unfortunately, to go into the details of all these things. I just give you, as it were, the highlights. Also, he built a seaplane and entered it for the Daily Mail Round Britain race in the summer of that year. The course was, as it were, to turn left after leaving Southampton and head for Dover, and then go all the way around the United Kingdom. Hawker was flying the machine. His first attempt was unsuccessful. He was overcome, it was thought, by exhaust fumes uh, somewhere around the Norfolk area, and he returned and started again. Meanwhile, all the other competitors had, in fact, dropped out. So it became very nearly a flyover for him, and he did, in fact, get very nearly all the way around the British Isles. But uh, when coming down the western coast, he suffered a mishap, and the machine was wrecked. But nevertheless, Lord Northcliffe of the Daily Mail awarded him the consolation prize of £1,000. Again, in 1913, there first appeared the tabloid at Hendon. Powered by an 80-horsepower gnome engine, this little aeroplane might be said to be the forerunner of the long line of successful single-engine Sopwith fighter aircraft. And to that basic design, floats were fitted. And here is a picture, again taken in 1913, by Bo uh, Kirk's Boatyard on the River Thames um, at Kingston. Um, our factory now is, in fact, in the background of that picture. Um, historically, it would be of interest, perhaps, to note that uh, then the machine was equipped with uh, Linton Hope floats. And yet another variation of this aeroplane went to Monte Carlo in uh, 1914, take part in the second Schneider Trophy contest, which it won. 
flown by Howard Pixton standing on the float there, because during the first half of 1914, Falker himself was in Australia, in his home country, with one of these aircraft, to be precise, a tabloid, with which he was giving demonstrations in the Sydney, Canberra, Melbourne area. So Howard Pixon won the second Schneider Trophy race at 84 miles an hour. He flew an extra two or three laps to set up the world's maximum speed of 92 miles an hour with this little aeroplane. Falker returned to Sopwith uh, in the summer of 1914 and from then on uh, took the part, as it were, of chief, chief test pilot for the company. Now, a quick aerial view of uh, Kingston uh, will help you to see where these various places are that I have been referring to. Now, Kingston Railway Station is off to the right of the picture here. This is the main road from Kingston to Richmond. This is now the ABC Theatre, and this is the roller skating rink in which those early aeroplanes were built. But it was outside the entrance uh, to that rink that you saw those earlier pictures. Towards the end of 1913, Sopwith wanted to increase his production facilities, and so he bought uh, a large plot of ground on which he built those factories, uh, which you see there. Now, one of the first successful operational Sopwith aeroplanes was the one-and-a-half strata. This, as it were, is a sort of south end of a one-and-a-half strata looking north, uh, referred to as a one-and-a-half strata because of the uh, center section struts underneath the center of the upper wing. Officially, in fact, it was known as the Admiralty Type 9700. Now, I managed to find some film taken uh, during operations with this aeroplane in France in 1916 or 17. And so, uh, can we now have this slide off and go over to the motion picture projector and we see, first of all, the observer climbing in the rear cockpit and uh, shortly he'll be handed a Lewis gun which he fastens to the scarf ring designed by Warrant Officer Scarf. And in a moment or two you will see him collecting three or four drums of ammunition for this gun. The normal power plant for the one and a half strata was the 130 horsepower Clerget engine and the armament this Lewis gun mounted on the scarf ring and a fixed Vickers gun firing through the propeller arc. Also, the machine could carry four 25-pound bombs. And the all-up weight of this two-seater at takeoff was just under 2,000 pounds. 5,400 of these aeroplanes were made, and no less than 4,200 of that number were made by six subcontractors in France. Sopwith Aviation made 246 at Kingston on Thames. The airframe cost 842 pounds six shillings, and the engine 907 pounds ten shillings. Now, also, we see in this short sequence of film a takeoff from a gun turret on board a ship. Uh, you'll see the gentleman checking strength and direction of wind. Then the throttle is opened, and the 130 horsepower clergy engine takes the aeroplane off after a run of only a few feet. The takeoff uh, was followed uh, by a successful landing on a ship's deck. You see the aircraft coming in. It's arrested by longitudinal rubber ropes, which not only slowed the aircraft down, but kept the machine running straight. And now, rather unfairly, I've selected another piece of film which shows that all these things were not always successful. <clears throat> now, the next uh, aircraft that I'd like to describe briefly is the Sopwith Pup. So-called, it's thought, because uh, it was likened to the Pup, or the child of the one-and-a-half strutter. Some say that another reason why it was called the Pup was because an official directive uh, went out from the War Office that the aircraft was not to be called the Pup. And that did it, of course. It was then the Pup from now on, from then on. 1,800 of these uh, aircraft were made, powered normally by the 80-horsepower Lerone engine. Prototype was approved by the experimental department at Sopwiths in February 1916. Now, I'd like you to have a look at this photograph, which was taken on the Somme in 1917, 
and particularly at this gentleman here. Now, his name was Robert Foster, and it still is Robert Foster. In those days, though, he was second lieutenant, Robert Foster, Royal Flying Corps. Today, he is Air Chief Marshal Sir Robert Foster, RAF, retired. And it's uh, been my pleasure to work with him fairly closely from time to time. And he very kindly made a recording of just what it was like to fly Sopwith Pops during 1917. And so now I'll switch over to a recording uh, of Sir Thomas Sopwith talking about the Sopwith Pup. From the flying point of view, the Sopwith Pup is certainly the finest aircraft of its day. No vices, beautiful to handle, and, no, and with only 80 horsepower in its Lurone engine of outstanding performance. We attained 18,000 feet with regularity and could get even higher. The aircraft itself always behaved in the most gentlemanly way, but it needed careful handling. A dive of 160 mph was fast enough, and at 180, the wings were definitely flapping, and a gentle recovery was essential, since to lose a wing when that had no parachute offered no future. The pup's one disadvantage was its extreme lightness. When operating in strong winds, our squadron's practice was to call out all available personnel when a patrol was landing back. The men would spread out in two lines on the airfield between which the aircraft would land and have their wingtips seized before a gust could blow them over. In this connection, this entry in my logbook for the 24th of March, 1917, when we were stationed at Tripilli on the Somme. Soccer Scout 646, two hours, 20 minutes. Escort to FEs, no scrapping, very cold and high wind, crashed landing. <coughs> this was a shame-making incident. I was the last to land. The squadron's out in its two lines, and the wind was gusting very strongly. After a number of unsuccessful efforts, I eventually got on the ground. But while one mechanic managed to catch a wingtip, the man on the other side failed to do so. So I gracefully turned over onto my back in front of the whole squadron. All my squadron commander said to me was, I knew you would make a balls of it, but why waste the squadron's time making 13 shots to land? Why not crash the first time? And then came the camel. So-called because of the hump in front of the cockpit where the two Vickers guns were mounted. And now once again, um, by searching through the archives of the Imperial War Museum, with the kind cooperation of the gentleman who takes care of films there, I found a motion picture film sequence of Sopwith Camels being built in 1917. And so, if we can have this slide off, please, and go over to the motion picture projector, we will see an actual film sequence taken in one of the subcontractors' factories of camels being built. And the first scene is of the Langerons being placed in position, and the nicely spaced, uh, spindled uh, spacers being uh, positioned in the jig. And in the next scene, we shall see the wire bracing being applied to this part of the primary structure. 5,742 Sopwith camels were built. There's the wire bracing going into position. Sopwith Aviation at Kingston built 500 of these aeroplanes. And the remainder were built mostly by Burton and Paul, and Rust and Proctor. Both those companies built over 1,500 of these aeroplanes. The remainder were built by six other subcontractors. Two original examples exist today, one in the Imperial War Museum and the other in the Military Museum in Brussels, where, incidentally, a one-and-a-half strata could also be seen. Well, there is the fuselage complete, and you see it being lifted up and taken to another part of the factory where the gentleman in the very elegant hat places the engine bearer in position. And after this operation, we will see the linen fabric being wrapped around the structure before the fabric is doped and painted. Four types of engines were used to power this aircraft, Clerget, Lorraine, Mononome and Bentley. The great majority of these aeroplanes were single-seaters, although several two-seater training Sopwith camels were built. The pigmenting, I believe, meant sealing up the weave in the fabric before 
the dope and the paint was applied. Here the rigging of the aeroplane is being checked. And in the next scene we will see a camel in France being armed up with ammunition for the two fixed thickest guns, which of course fired through the arc of the pillar, controlled by an interrupted gear. And after this, a quick view of the sort of hangar, which was used in those days, under those operational circumstances, with in front of the hangar, a camel with a Bentley rotary engine. And uh, in a moment, an aircraft taxiing out, prior to takeoff, followed by a flyby, and then perhaps one of the most unusual motion picture sequences I've seen, a cavalry charge receiving top cover from camels. Well, now, after completing his toil operations in uh, France on sock with pups, Captain Foster, by this time, returned to the UK for an operational spell of duty on camels before returning in 1918 to France for an operational tour on camels. I'll now switch back to the recording that he made a few weeks ago of uh, uh, operational flying on the camel. After completing a nine-month operational tour on pups in France, I was fortunate enough to be posted to the first home defence squadron to be equipped with camels. So I got six months in England doing intensive flying on the camel. I really got to know the aircraft very well, and also did a certain amount of night flying on it, an occupation which struck me at the time as unfairly dangerous, since when we first restarted this game, we hung electric torches round our necks as the only illumination for our instruments. When the Germans nearly overwhelmed us in France in March 1918, many pilots of some experience like myself were rushed back to the front, and I found myself in a camel squadron equipped with uh, Bentley rotary engines. This gave us a slightly superior performance to the camels with the Clerget or the Lerone engines. From those critical days of March 1918 to the armistice in November, we were at high pressure all the time. The pilot and the aircraft rates of wastage were staggering. And at the armistice, our adjutant produced the tally, which showed that between March and November, there had been 120 pilots, through the squadron with an establishment of it 20. From uh, this you can readily understand uh, that pilots who survived those operations must be extremely grateful to the designers and builders of those Sopwith aircraft. In my case, I know that their expertise certainly saved my life, which I say thank you very much. Now, by the end of the war, even the new factory built uh, in Kingston by Mr. Sopworth, in 1914, was really quite inadequate, and uh, further space was required. And so a factory was built by the side of the Richmond Road, which runs from the right to the left of the screen, on the banks of the River Thames, which uh, is down here at the bottom of the picture. And that factory was put up to uh, to, uh, to to build Sopworth aeroplanes in. The locals, incidentally, kicked up a fair fuss when this was erected, because it spoiled a very attractive riverside site, and they were promised that at the end of the war, whenever it might be, the factory would be pulled down. Now, inside the factory, uh, one saw scenes such as this. And this gives one some idea of the enormous numbers of Sopwith aircraft that were built. There just isn't time to go through them all now. One might perhaps refer to the Snipe, the Sopwith Buffalo, the Sopwith Dragon, the Rhino, the Salamander, and the world's first operational triplane. This machine, believe it or not, was designed built, flown, and flown against the enemy, all within a period of six weeks. Another Sopwith aircraft was the Dolphin. This machine was first flown by Harry Hawker on May the 23rd, 1917. Its backward stagger was a characteristic. Uh, the whole idea was to give the pilot uh, the best possible view, and also the best possible armament. Here you see the two fixed Vickers guns, and the lowest guns, and the 200-horsepower Hispano engine with which this aircraft was powered. Then the war came to an end, but Sopwith kept on building aircraft, a great number. I've selected this one to show you. I think it's rather nice of Harry Hawker in the Sopwith Grasshopper flying under the bridge, the Byfleet Bridge at Brooklands. This little aeroplane was a two-seater trainer and powered with the 100-horsepower Anzani engine. But the most dramatic chapter, perhaps, in the history of Sopworth's affairs was the story of his and Harry Hawker's and Kenneth Mackenzie Greaves' attempt 
to fly the Atlantic. This all arose as a result, once again, of a Daily Mail competition that was, in fact, set up in 1914 for the first person to successfully fly the Atlantic Ocean. Of course, the war stopped the competition, but in 1919, competitors rallied once again to have a crack at this flight. And among the competitors were Martin Side, Anne LePage, Vickers, and Sopwith. Sopwith designed this aeroplane, or to be more exact, one of his designers, a man called W.G. Carter, designed this aeroplane which was based on an earlier Sopwith aeroplane, the Sopwith bomber. And once again, we've been able to find some film of what happened. So can we have now this slide off and uh, the motion picture sequence? Uh, because the whole exercise uh, was filmed uh, on behalf of uh, Mr. Sopwith by Jury's Imperial Pictures. And this first scene is of the Atlantic coming out of the experimental hangar, which, if you remember, was under the direction of Jack Pollard, who you saw in one of the earlier slides when they were in America, in January 1914. The machine was powered with a 360-horsepower Rolls-Royce Eagle engine. The large cockpit contained two seats, one slightly forward of the other, pilot sitting on the right, the navigator on the left. Here is the machine being fueled up prior to its test flight at Brooklands. 360 gallons were carried in the fuel tank uh, about the center of gravity of the aeroplane. And here the oil tank is being filled up with 24 gallons of oil. The empty weight of this aeroplane was 3,000 pounds. Here's Hawker getting in, sitting on the right-hand side of the cockpit. And Lieutenant Commander Kenneth Mackenzie Greve, his navigator, sitting in the left-hand side, slightly aft of the pilot. And on this particular test flight, they flew the aircraft for a period of 9 hours and 15 minutes at a speed of 110 miles an hour. They filmed the aircraft in flight from another Sopwith aircraft. All went well on the flight. All systems functioned perfectly. Great care was made, was taken in the construction of this aircraft. Well, because, of course, it was a very rich prize that they were after. There's the aircraft coming into land over the sheds at Byfleet, Byfleet Sheds at Brooklands at the end of that flight. And on the 2nd of March, 1919, the aircraft was crated up and sent by ship to St. John's, Newfoundland, where this particular sequence was taken. The conditions were rough, as you'll see in a moment. The point of technical interest was that the undercarriage was designed to be dropped directly after takeoff, and this added another nine or ten miles an hour to the cruising speed of the aeroplane. The bottom longerons were specially strengthened to withstand the impact of landing. And the flight plan was from St. John's, Newfoundland, to Brooklands. Correct. Here they are uncrating the aeroplane. They had bad luck then. They got a lot of erroneous, adverse weather reports. And they waited and waited. They did one test flight. But here you see them testing the small boat, which in fact was the upper part of the rear fuselage. The boat itself formed the upper combing of the rear fuselage aft of the cockpit. And this was their dinghy, as it were. And here they are checking it out. And in a moment, in the next sequence, you will see them checking out their immersion suits. In the next sequence, you will see the aircraft, and if you look closely, you will see the mechanism which enable the undercarriage of the machine to be detached on takeoff. The, um, the actual undercarriage is in the museum in St. John's now. There it is. And in the next sequence, we see the aeroplane taking out, taxiing out, takeoff for a practice flight. Now, in the event, Hawker and Mackenzie Grieve in this aircraft were the first to start. They started on Sunday, the 18th of May. They started before any of the other competitors. They flew 1,100 miles. And then the water temperature and the radiator rose to boiling point, and Hawker realized that the coolant was boiling away. There was nothing he could do to bring the temperature down, and it was clear that after a short while the motor would cease. And so he turned south from his route, saw a small ship, and ditched the aeroplane successfully by the ship. They were picked up, and a week later they returned to England. They were both awarded the Air Force Cross, and as a consolation prize, Northcliffe gave Sopwith £5,000. 
And to complete this chapter in our story, one should pay credit, of course, to Vickers, because Alcock and Brown did the flight successfully one month later. Well, here is the last of the Sopwith aeroplanes, the Sopwith Antelope, a three-seater powered by the Wolseley Viper engine. It was at this time, late 1919, that Sopwith was trying to get into the commercial market. But the going was rough. He tried, he cast about for other work to do, because, of course, there were no more military contracts, and uh, furthermore, the start of civil aviation was desperately slow. He took out a license to build the ABC motorcycle, and here is the Sopwith ABC motorcycle in the motor show of 1920. But in the, faces, in the face of enormous taxes due to the transfer of the Exchequer under a wartime Ministry of Munitions Control of Profits, Sopwith advised his board to wind up the company while still solvent. And so, on the 10th of September, 1920, Sopwith Aviation went into voluntary liquidation. Sopwith himself had been responsible for the construction of 18,106 aeroplanes in the eight years of the company's existence. Forty-five different designs, quite different. Now, all these were made, in addition to the Sopwith Aviation Company at Kingston, by 47 subcontractors. He was a CBE, and in 1920 he was 32 years old. The Richmond Road Works were taken over by Leyland, and Sopwith formed a new company on November the 15th, 1920, in Cambury Park Road called H.D. Hawker Engineering Limited. And their work consisted initially of reconditioning some of the earlier Sopwith aircraft for the Royal Air Force and uh, the Royal Naval Air Service, and general engineering contracts. Sopwith, of course, was the man still behind the scenes, but he named his new company after his chief test pilot. This must perhaps be the last picture that was taken of Harry Hawker on the left of the screen, standing beside Sopwith, because on July the 12th, 1921, Hawker was killed in a Newport Goshawk near Hendon when practicing for the aerial derby of that year. He was 32 years old. Tribute by Colonel Moore Brabazon in a foreword to the book that Muriel Hawker wrote about Harry Hawker in 1922 went like this. Hawker, when he died, was the idealized sportsman of the youth of the country, and it was rightly so. Modest in triumph, hardworking, a tremendous sticker, yet possessed of that vision, without which no man can succeed. He stands out a figure whose life and career will serve as an example for others to attempt to follow. So Hawker himself didn't see the first Hawker aircraft, the Hawker Diker, a reconnaissance aircraft designed uh, by Captain Thompson, who had joined the company, powered by a Bristol Jupiter engine. It was first flown in July 1923. The second Hawker aircraft was rather more successful, the Woodcock. This was designed by Carter, who was still with the company, he took over from Captain Thompson. The Woodcock, again, was first flown in 1923. It entered the Royal Air Force in 1925 as a night fighter. And it was the first of the Hawker aircraft to be exported. The Danes took out the license to build the aeroplane in Copenhagen, where they called the aeroplane the Dancock. And this is the last of the Dancocks hanging out in the military museum in Copenhagen. 1923 saw Mr. Cam join the company from Martinson. And this was the first of Sidney Cam's aircraft. He was placed in charge of the Signal. Built in 1923-24, it has, and I say has because we still have this aeroplane at our airfield, it has an empty weight of 375 pounds and a takeoff weight of 950 pounds. A two-seater powered by a 34-horsepower Bristol Cherub engine. It was successful in many light aircraft competitions, especially those sponsored by the Daily Mail, between 1923, 24, and 25. One of the pilots was uh, a flight lieutenant, George Bullman, on the left of the screen, who joined the company from Farnborough. And here I'd like to refer to one of the aircraft that Bullman did earlier testing on, and that was the Horsley. Can we therefore have uh, this slide off and uh, look at the film that was made in December, in fact, 1929, of the Horsley? The early aircraft still had uh, wooden primary structures, although later versions of the machine uh, had metal structures. It was a medium-day bomber, 
It was in fact originally called Kingston, but eventually to Horsley, because at that time Sopwith was living at the little village of East Horsley. Bowman first flew the aircraft in 1935. It was fired with the Rolls-Royce Condor engine and entered the uh, Royal Air Force in 1927. And it was in one of these airplanes that a young Flight Lieutenant Charles Roderick Carr attempted to fly direct from Cranwell to India, a distance of 5,000 miles. He took off on the 20th of May, 1927, but was forced down a day and a half later near the Persian Gulf, having covered the furthest distance that any aircraft had covered at that time, 3,420 miles. Fuel travel forced him down. But the day after that, a young American landed at Le Bourget in Paris, having flown direct from New York, having covered 3,590 miles. So the Sopwith record only stood for 24 hours. These are the aircraft then. Six Horsleys were sold to the Greek Navy, and this motion picture sequence was taken in Greece in 1929. Next, perhaps, uh, the first and possibly the most well-known of all Cairns aircraft, the Hawker Hart. Steel II, primary structure. First flown by Bowman in June 1928, and after about six months' demonstration flying, it was exhibited, along with another airplane, initially called the Hornet, later the Fury, at the Olympia Aero Show in 1929. One thousand of these airplanes, very nearly, were built for the RAF, and additional parts and heart variants, Fury and Fury variants, were exported to Estonia, South Africa, Rhodesia, Sweden, Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, Denmark, Egypt, Persia, state settlements, Australia, Ireland, and New Zealand. We still have this particular example, which flies from time to time. This, in fact, uh, this aircraft has had many experiences, uh, one of which will be remembered by one member of the audience here. For in 1932, George Bowman flew this aircraft at the hand and air display, and in the rear cockpit were two well-known flyers, Jerry Sayer and Philip Lucas. The next uh, picture is a favorite one of mine, really. It is of a heart inverted with Brooklyn's in the background. You can see in the bottom left-hand corner there, by the Byfleet banking, the Hawker sheds, and in fact by the track itself, the original sheds from which Sopwith flew in those very early days before the war. Then the Hornet, or as it later became known, the Fury. In this, uh, this particular picture, in fact, is of a high-speed Fury, powered with the Goshawk engine. Now we've got a short piece of film to remind you of just what these aeroplanes did look like in flight. It's in three, three parts, as it were. First we see a heart, then we see a variation of the Fury, the Nimrod, uh, a fleet fighter, and then Hawker Furies themselves. So could we have the slide-off and the next piece of film, please? First the heart, next the fleet fighters, the Nimrod, and then the last of Sidney Cairn's great biplane fighters, the Hawker Fury. Now, the Imperial Japanese Defense Force bought the license right to build n the Nimrod in Japan in 1931. And a young flight lieutenant was seconded to Hawker Aircraft, or H.G. Hawker Engineering Limited, from Martlesham Heath. And here's the gentleman on the right-hand side of this picture. And his name is Philip Lucas. And, and he was responsible uh, for the successful work that was done with the Japanese government at that time. He went out to Japan and he supervised the working uh, of, that, of that order. Then he came back, and in 1932, Hawkers pulled off what must have been the largest export order in terms of numbers ever achieved by the British aircraft industry in peacetime. Now, that is Philip Lucas on the right of the picture, and that photograph was taken in 1931. This photograph of Philip Lucas was taken on the 1st of January this year, 1971. And Philip Lucas very kindly made a recording of what it was like in those days, 1932. 2, 33, 34, to get those Hawker Hearts and Hawker Furies out to Persia. They had to be crated and sent out to the Persian Gulf, and then they had to be uncrated and built up and flown to Tehran. And I was lucky enough to spend a day with Philip, and he very kindly made a recording while looking at some of the photographs that he took of this particular incident all those many years ago. So now, let's go over then to a recording of Philip Lucas telling us about the export of hearts to Persia in 1932.
Before we set off from England, we had bought and shipped out a hangar in which to erect the aircraft. Also, the aircraft were shipped out in packing cases to Bandashapur and transported from Bandashapur up to Arwaz uh, on, um, on the railway, which had been then being built from the Persian Gulf to the Caspian Sea, but had only at that time be constructed for a hundred miles. On our arrival in Arwaz, we found that the hangar hadn't been erected at all. Uh, all the girders and bits of structure were lying in heaps at the side of the railhead, together with the aeroplane packing cases. So the first thing we had to do was to set to to find out well how to put the hangar together and put it up. This we eventually did with the help of Persian Army conscripts. How long did it take you to erect the aircraft and finally deliver them to the Persian authorities in Tehran? Well, once we had got the hangar built and uh, found a way of um, unpacking the cases and transporting them to the flat piece of ground which we used as an aerodrome, we were building them about, uh, erecting them in about one every two days. But as the weather got hotter, we, the working conditions were very difficult because the temperatures on one occasion were over 120 in the shade. A glimpse of the past. In 1933, the outstanding success of Hawker Designs permitted Sopwith to seek additional capital by the formation of a public company, and since any pretense of general engineering had long disappeared, the name Hawker Aircraft Limited was adopted in 1933. Reasonable assets already existed, but the company possessed inadequate production facilities to undertake large orders for its aircraft. The first step to expand and strengthen the company's resources was taken in February 1934 when Hawker Aircraft purchased the Gloucester Aircraft Company, which owned one of the largest aircraft factories in the country, in addition to its airfield on the outskirts of Gloucester. The first Hawker contract to be transferred to Gloucester was one for Hawker Audaxes in 1934, and in subsequent years, Henley's Hurricanes and typhoons were built in that factory. Now, another significant thing happened. It happened in the drawing office at uh, Kingston-on-Thames, Cambria Park Road, in December 1933, when this tree view was sketched up, the Hawker Monopet. And this is particularly significant because it was, in fact, from this drawing that the hurricane finally emerged. But we'll come on to that machine a little later because there's some more reorganization to go through. In July 1935, Sockwith announced the formation of a trust to acquire all the shares of the Armstrong Sidley Development Company and the formation of a public holding company to be known as Hawker Sidley Aircraft Limited. Hawker Sidley Aircraft Company Limited. Thus, in one stroke, a powerful group of companies had been brought together, including, and as you see, the names are A.V. Rowe, Gloucester, Armstrong, Sidley, Hawksley, Hawker, Air Service Training, and Armstrong and Whitworth. Now, we know who Hawker was, and we talk about Hawker, but Sidney perhaps is not quite so well known. And this is John Davenport Sidney. Entered the motor industry at the beginning of the century. In 1902, he designed a car, which three, lo- three years later was marketed as the Wolseley Sidney. In 1908, he broke away from the Wolseley Company, and in partnership with Major Deasy, he manufactured the Sidley Deasy car. And it was during World War I that the Sidley Deasy Works first began to manufacture aircraft and aircraft engines. At the end of the First World War, Armstrong Whitworth acquired an interest in Sidley Deasy, and this then was the start of the Armstrong Sidley Company. Early in the 1920s, Armstrong Sidley acquired A.V. Rowe, among other engineering works, um, produced the Lynx and Jaguar aircraft engines. The company pioneered the Armstrong Whitworth Siskin, among other famous fighter aircraft. John Sidley was chairman of the Society of British Aircraft Companies from 1931 to 33. In 32, he was knighted. In 1935, Mr. Sockwood bought the Armstrong Sidley Development Company. Later, Sir John Sidley was raised to the peerage in 1937, becoming the first Lord Kenilworth. He died in 1953. Now back to the hurricane again. Here, the prototype was first flown by George Bowman on the 6th of November, 1935, powered by the Rolls-Royce Merlin engine, giving very nearly one brake horsepower per one pound of weight. Now, we haven't time, of course, to go through the whole of the hurricane story, but I thought some photographs would remind you of the many and various roles that this machine played. The Hawker 2C with four 20mm cannon, the Hawker 2D with two 40mm 
canons, a rare bird, a two-seater hurricane for the Persians, a rather nice picture of Philip Lucas upside down, and the last of the hurricanes, again flown by George Bowman, this time in 1944. And this aeroplane was purchased by the company, and we still have it, and we fly it from time to time. About 15,100 hurricanes were flown. But now we're built. But now we must go back to about 1937-38. Brooklyn's was becoming too small, and so a new airfield was built near Slough at Langley. And the first flight from this new airfield was by Philip Lucas on a hurricane, in a hurricane, on the 3rd of October, 1939. The tornado came along at about this time, and this is the prototype. The tornado was powered by the 24-cylinder Rolls-Royce Vulture engine, and it was first flown at Langley on the 6th of October, 1939. One of Philip Lucas's colleagues at that time was Bill Humboldt, who shared with Philip a lot of the flying on the tornado, and then the typhoon, then the tempest, and then the fury. And I was lucky enough to meet Bill Humboldt quite recently, and he made a recording of just what it was like uh, to fly uh, this, the last series of piston-engine fighters designed by Sidney Cairn. So we'll go over to a recording then of Bill Humboldt, who first of all describes the typhoon. The typhoon was really the forerunner of the Tempest and Fury, and if you like, she was the first generation. She was really rather an unattractive coarse baggage um, with one or two quite nasty traits in her character. She was very obstinate. Put her into a spin at 25,000 feet with a CG aft and she'd stop there until you were down to six or 7,000 feet no matter what you did. Then she'd come out of her own accord and lumber off without even a word of apology or explanation. Now her progeny, the Tempest, was a far different kettle of fish. Uh, she was a very much more refined lady, one could almost say refined. She had impeccable manners, um, and uh, never put a foot wrong. The sort of girl you could take round to the vicar's tea party with absolute confidence, but really rather unexciting to live with. Her, her daughter, if you can put it that way, the Fury, was unmistakably one of the family. Uh, but uh, she'd had a bit of a facelift on the fuselage. She was fully monocoque. And there was a bit of, uh, how do we say, center sectomony. In other words, she'd had her center section removed and the span reduced. This really produced an absolutely exceptional aeroplane. I think it was an aeroplane uh, with more character than any, of I've, than any I've flown in 20 years. She was lithe and light and responsive. She was, of course, the fastest piston engine proper aircraft, and it's never the last. Yes, that is true. And um, I think it was very fitting that, as she was the last of Sidney Cam's propeller types, she should have been the best. By Joe, John, that photograph brings back some memories. It must have been at Langley in 1946, when the Swiss came over to evaluate the Fury. Not the Tempest we're standing in front of. There's Willie Fry right on the left. He was chief test pilot of the Swiss Air Force and a wonderful character. Next to him, a very amusing type, Major Lederer. And next to him, Muspratt, Spratt. He was my number two at the time. Next door to him, Suter of the Swiss Legation. And next is a very good-looking Philip Lucas. He was a very good friend of mine, and if it hadn't been for him, I don't think I would have ever lasted the course at Hawkins. On his left is Primo, chief of the Swiss Air Force at the time. And you see that hat he's wearing? Well, when he took the Fury off, he was still wearing it. He didn't believe in helmets. And next comes Frank Lloyd, who I believe is now in Canada, having retired. Now, who's that next door to him? Uh, let's see. Lieutenant Letcher, another Swiss pilot. And behind him... Willie Williams, the RTO at the time, now retired from the service and back with Hawkers. And on the end, myself, wearing a modified RAF greatcoat 
I couldn't afford anything better at the time. And there, right in the background, is Lieutenant Vice, sitting in that little honey, the Furia. Very good. Now, I understand, in fact, though, that uh, the Swiss uh, uh, decided to go for the vampire in the end. Yes, they did, and I think possibly quite rightly. After all, the age of propeller-driven fighters was reaching its end, and the jet was obviously the thing which was coming in the future. And then, Bell, I believe that you did the uh, first flight in the prototype P-1040. I did indeed, and always considered it a terrific honour. And to have the honour to fly Sydney Cam and Hawker's first jet was quite something, as far as I was concerned. And Bill Humble flew the P-1040 for the first time at Boston Down on the 2nd of September, 1947. Powered by the Rolls-Royce Dean engine, it had an initial thrust of 4,500 pounds. The wing root intakes were to be carried forward to a great number of Hawker jet aircraft, and the split jet pipe coming out at either side of the wing roots was to be copied a little later in another aeroplane, which I will refer to shortly. The P-1040, of course, grew into the Seahawk. 500 were made for the Royal Navy by Armstrong Whitworth, and they were also bought by the West German Navy, by Holland, and by India. They're still in service with the Indian Navy. Then, if you'll forgive me rushing through things, came the P-1052, the P-1072, and the P, instead, this stands for project number, the P-1081, and then the P-1067. But before we get on to that aeroplane, let's just have a quick look at our factory as it was at about this time, 1947-1948. The Richmond Road is at the bottom left-hand corner of the picture, and uh, at that time, uh, the Leyland people moved out, and the factory started to move back, as it were, from Cambridge Park Road into these buildings here. And then about ten years later, 1955-1956, the front section of that factory was chopped off by the road, and in its place, our present rather smart offices were built. And then if we take a look at the, the factory as it is today, from the same position that that picture was taken in 1918, we see what the scene looks like now, with the Richmond Road running again from right to left, the River Thames at the bottom, and you see there the old original factory with the new office block on the front, and a new, as we still call it, experimental building by the river. And it was at this time, 1955-56, that uh, we left Langley and moved to Dunsfold. Well, some of you may not know or recall what the P-1067 was, but in fact, it was this, the Hunter. The first flight by Neville Duke at Boscombe Down on the 20th of July, 1951. So on the 20th of July this year will be the 20th anniversary of the first flight of this great aircraft. The world speed record was achieved by this machine, in 1953, speed of 727 miles per hour. And it was also in 1953 that Mr. Sopwith and Mr. Cam became Sir Thomas Sopwith and Sir Sidney Cam. The Hunter entered the RAF in 1954. Approximately 1,000 were built for the RAF. Other users of the aircraft include, of course, the Royal Navy. And then in almost alphabetical order, the Air Forces of Abu Dhabi, Belgium, Chile, Denmark, India, Jordan, Netherlands, Peru, Saudi Arabia, Singapore, Iraq, Lebanon, Sweden, Switzerland, and we just had another order for 30 rebuilt hunters from Switzerland. Over 2,000 hunters have been built, and we're still refurbishing them. And this means that, like the Seahawk, the hunter will be flown operationally by pilots who were not born when the prototypes first flew. Two-seater hunter was also, of course, built. Now, at about this time, let us say 1955-56, uh, Sydney Cam heard of an operational requirement uh, calling for a dual-rail aircraft, uh, interceptor and tactical strike. And so the company did the private venture on a machine called the P-1121. And here it is in mock-up form. The aircraft could be fired either by the de Havilland uh, Gyron engine or the Bristol Olympus engine or indeed the Rolls-Royce Conway. But by the end of 1957, it was quite clear that the company would not receive a contract to go ahead with this machine, and so the company stopped work on it. Another thing happened in 1957. There was, you may recall, a defense white paper stating that the days of the manned fighter aircraft were numbered. 
And another thing happened in 1957, so far as we were concerned, and that was the first notification we had of an engine called the BS-53, an engine which was to eventually be developed jointly, as it were, by Hawkers and Bristol's, now Rolls-Royce, into the Pegasus engine which powers the, the Harrier. But in those early days, it was merely the fan air, the front air, as it were, that could be vectored or ducted. The air was drawn in by the front intake there, and the two nozzles, you could see, could be rotated by the pilot to vector the fan air either downwards for hovering flight or, or horizontally aft for conventional flight. Uh, in the summer of 1957, a project was done with this type of engine, and that's how the P-1127 first looked, with a conventional jet pipe, you see, and only the fan air vectorable. The, the thrust nozzles themselves, as it were, were set about the center of gravity of the aircraft. But only about 5,000 pounds of uh, thrust was obtainable from the, uh, from the fan air. Now, you will recall when you saw the P-1040, I mentioned that the tailpipe was split. And here you see a three view of the aeroplane, and in the plan view, you see there how, in fact, the tailpipe, the jet pipe was split and ejected the exhaust gases out from the port and starboard wing route. So, Hawkers asked Bristol's to do the same thing on the BS-53 engine. And by March 1958, when greater design effort was put onto this project because of the cessation of work on the P-1121, the P-1127 took on a recognizable shape. And you'll see how its jet pipe has been split and how two nozzles have been put on it and how those four nozzles, the two vectoring the fan air and the two vectoring the hot gases, could be rotated simultaneously by the pilot. When pointing downwards, the aircraft would hover, and when pointing aft, the aircraft would fly conventionally. The company found very little support at this time for this machine, and so, in fact, uh, entered into discussions with the Mutual Weapons Defense Program uh, people, the Americans, in Paris. And uh, these talks resulted in an offer by the Americans to finance 75% of the funds required to produce the engine up to a thrust of about 15,000 pounds. Bristol engines, as Rolls-Royce bristles, were then called, elected to ante up the remaining 25%, and Hawkers went again once again with a private venture and started on the detailed design and construction of two prototype aircraft. This, then, is... Uh, the prototype under construction uh, in our experimental hangar in 1959, the year, incidentally, when the first engine first ran on engine stands at Bristol. Now, uh, the aircraft first took off in hovering flight in November, to be more exact, October 1960. There is the prototype aircraft. The flight development program was undertaken by Bill Bedford and Hugh Merriweather and Duncan Simpson. Mike Adams from the RAF joined them later on. The order finally came through for two prototypes and then four development aircraft, and then we got an order for nine aircraft having developed engines, which were to be called Kestrels, and evaluated by the Americans, by American uh, Air Force, Navy, and Army pilots, RAF pilots, and West Germany Air Force pilots. But just breaking away from this story for a moment, Again, reorganization. Hawker Aircraft Limited as such came to an end in 1963. In addition to RAF and Royal Naval customers, since 1920, Hawkers had sold aircraft to 39 different countries around the world, and from 1963 to the present date, five more countries have received Hawker aircraft, including the United States. And we came... Part, then, of Hawker Sidley Aviation. Meanwhile, on the industrial side, the rest of the Hawker Sidley group was looking something like this. And we form part of Hawker Sidley Aviation on the top left-hand corner of that slide. With us, as it were, in Hawker Sidley Aviation is the old Blackburn Company of Brough, Avery Road, Manchester, the Havilland of Hatfield, and Collins at Hamble. Chairman, Managing Director is, of course, Sir Arnold Hall, but the President and Founder is Sir Thomas Sopwith, seen here with Lady Sop. Meanwhile, we had problems back at Kingston, because in those early 1960s, to be with it at all, you had to have a supersonic aeroplane on the stocks, and the P-1127 was not a supersonic machine. So Stanley Hooker, Dr. Hooker, the technical director of 
Bristol engines devised a new engine known as the BS-100, which employed a form of afterburning, in fact, to be correct, phenom chamber burning, when fuel was burnt at will by the pilot in the forward nozzles, the front nozzles, so raising the temperature of the efflux that an increase of about 20 to 25% in thrust was obtained. This, then, is how the P-1154 for the Royal Air Force might have looked if the project had gone ahead, and the Royal Navy at that time were asking for a two-seater, and this is how the Royal Naval version of the supersonic V-style P-1154 would have looked had the Navy had the machine. But both projects were cancelled early in 1965. It was in the summer of 1965 that the Kestrel program went ahead with very successful results, and we were given a contract then to go ahead and develop the machine for the RAF. The following year, to be precise, on the 12th of March 1966, at the age of 72, Sidney Cam died. And this is a tribute paid by one of his colleagues. Many people think that the design starts with a specification from the authorities, but with Cam this procedure was reversed. He considered that the uninterrupted experience he had had in fighter design over a number of years enabled him to forecast the RAF's next requirement better than they could themselves. In other words, he would produce a new design incorporating various features which he knew the Air Ministry required, discuss it at length with the Air Ministry and later the Ministry of Supply, and in due course an official specification would be issued largely written around the tentative design he had originally submitted. This happened time and time again. But at his death then we were... Uh, we had the contract to go ahead and develop the Kestrel into what is now known as the Harrier. And here it is. It entered uh, the Royal Air Force last year. It's the world's first V-style fighter aircraft. And as you know from the press, it has been bought by the United States Marine Corps. And it is now the center of interest throughout the aviation world, not only, of course, for its military applications, but perhaps even more important for its future civil applications, for the civil airliners of the future. And I'd like now to complete this part of my talk with a film of the Harrier. I'd just like to point out there that uh, when the film starts, you will hear reference to the Daily Mail, once again, air race of 1969 between New York and London, or across the Atlantic. And uh, it was, in fact, the Harrier that set up the fastest time from the centre of London to New York, against the prevailing wind. Uh, the fastest time overall, of course, was done by the Royal Navy and the Phantom, but they did it from New York to London, because like sailors the world over, they always like to travel with the wind behind them. Well now, Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, in these days of takeovers and mergers, of giant international companies and government involvement in far-ranging decisions of defense and construction policies, it may seem naive to look back nostalgically over a unique line of successful fighter aircraft. Does tradition count for anything anymore? And if so, what makes a good tradition? Is it possible to define the tradition built up by the Sopwith and Hawker companies since 1912? Virtually all Sopwith and Hawker fighters were single-engine and single-seaters, and therefore more aircraft were obtained for a given expenditure. Technical advances were brought in at the right time, such as the sharp-nosed, low-drag, liquid-cooled engines of the late 1920s and 30s, monoplanes, retractable undercarriages, turbojet engines, swept wings, and now vectored thrust. But above all, attention has been paid throughout these 60 years to the detailed design of mechanical parts and structures. Configurations were refined by intensive flight testing, and last but not least, simplicity and not complexity was sought whenever possible. This wise blend of such qualities still lies at the heart of sound engineering judgment, whatever the task. So now, Mr. Chairman, I would like to thank you for paying Hawker Siddeley Aviation, the compliment of asking for an account of our history, to the directors of Hawker Siddeley Aviation for allowing me to prepare this address, and to express my gratitude to all those who advised and helped during its preparation. We've seen something of what's gone on at Kingston upon Thames during the past 60 years, but believe me, Mr. Chairman, you ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, before we formally close the meeting, uh, I'm sure that there are a number of you from Hawkers, uh, by the greyness of your hair and the fact you are getting thin on top, I suspect that some of you have 
been with the firm for some years. I wonder if there is anyone here who can uh, just add something, if anything, to uh, what Swadden Reader Crampton has said about the early days or perhaps the pre-war days of uh, biplanes and fighters. Is there anyone who would like to uh, enlarge on anything the lecturer has said? Uh, well, Mr. Chairman, uh, as far as Sir Thomas Lockwood himself is concerned, I, I have often wondered just what it was that made the Sopwith concern the success that it was at the time that it was born in 1912 and then 1913, when the first true Sopwith aeroplanes were being designed, largely by Hawker, Sigrist, and Sopwith himself, on the skating rink floor in Cambridge Park Road. And I think that possibly is the secret. The fact that Sopwith could get men together and to work as a team. And that team of three men, uh, Sopwith, the leader as it were, and admittedly supplying quite a lot of the initial finance. Seagrist, the great practical engineer, and Hawker, the natural pilot, um, especially demonstration and uh, especially competition pilot. I think, uh, I think the work of those three men saw the company, as it were, off the ground. So many men at that time were indeed endeavouring to achieve uh, hard and sustained flight with all types of aircraft, um, but a lot of them were trying to do it alone. And it was so essential then, as indeed it is now, uh, to undertake such things uh, as a team rather than as individuals. And so I think it's Sopwith's magic quality of being able to get men together and work together as a team. Quite how he does it, I think it's probably a mystery, and we're always ahead, so. Thank you. I, I think it's uh, rather sad that uh, the firm was never known by the name of Sopwith for very much longer. Uh, can I ask you if, in your conversations with Sir Thomas, he has ever shown any regrets at uh, not having Sopwith as the name of the firm for so many years? No, no regrets at all. In fact, uh, had we gone a little deeper into the history of it, or uh, Sopwith himself flew a great deal, uh, did all the initial and early flying uh, from 1910 through 11 in America, through 1912 as a flying instructor, and then 1913 during those initial uh, Sopwith aeroplanes. But then he receded more and more into the background and pushed men forward like Hawker and Victor Marr and uh, several others whose names, of course, would escape my memory at the present time. And and he then became the sort of, um, he became the man in the background. He became, the, as it were, the conductor. And uh, and he wound up the Sopwith Company in 1920, as I explained, and uh, he didn't want the new company uh, to go under his name. He wanted to push Hawker forward and let it be known as H.T. Hawker Engineering. Because, after all, that's what Hawker was, and he contributed so much to the whole business but Sopwith, being the man he is, wanted to take the back seat. To the best of my knowledge, he's never, ever regretted the new company not being called Sopwith. Uh, I believe, I'm right in saying, there will be copies of Squadron Leader Crampton's lecture available in the anteroom after, after you leave here, uh, and they are available for anyone who wants a record of this evening. Certainly, we've had a most engrossing talk, uh, a very fine lecture, and uh, I'm sure I express the thanks of all of you to Squadron Leader Crampton for the immense amount of research work he has done in beveling out the slides, films, and the work in getting hold of the tape recordings of people, and then putting them together in such a professional way to give us such a fine lecture. I'm sure, you know, we have many more converts uh, to the historical group uh, from this evening's lecture. So on behalf of uh, all the ladies and gentlemen here, Rodney Leader Crampton, I thank you very much indeed.